Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. This time we're going to once again have our brother Mike Fitzhugh come forward and uh, give to us the word that the Lord has laid on his heart today. Brother Mike. Here we go. Good morning, everybody. Good to be back with you, and I appreciate the opportunity to share again the word with with the saints here. It's a privilege to do that whenever we do it. And um, just to uh, have this extra 15 minutes to introduce and get back into our study, you'll remember that two weeks ago, uh, we started a study of 2 Timothy 1, 1 to 12, and I want to continue that study today. Uh, but I'm going to hold off reading the, the long passage until the second uh, meeting where we've got uh, everybody together and uh, um, we'll read that longer passage then. Uh, but let me just introduce it and remind you of where we were at. You remember last time um, I reminded us that Paul and Timothy, just as we do, they lived in a, a scary and a troubled world. And it was one in which uh, people fear many things, um, including sickness and disease and social, political, economic uh, instability. People fear injuries and accidents and uh, ultimately death. They fear a lot of things, but that's the ultimate one. You wonder why people are so scared of COVID today. That's really, in terms of unsafe people, that's the great fear. And as a result, um, even Christians fear some things. Christians can fear the persecution and rejection that comes from other people, uh, from uh, unsaved people, because they are Christians. And the result ultimately is that we can, if, if we're not careful, we can be ashamed of the gospel. We can be ashamed of Christ. We can be ashamed of his followers. Uh, and this is really, I think, where people fear what people will think of them if they take an obvious stand for Christ. That's usually when the, the uh, shame comes. Um, so often people don't. Don't take that obvious stand. And we learned that this is really the main focus of the passage here in 2 Timothy 1, and we'll, we'll see that as we read the long passage a little later. Uh, it's about not being ashamed of Christ and the gospel and his people or his followers. And verse 8 um, says this, Therefore, do not be ashamed. This is 2 Timothy 1.8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And so that's why I've titled the message, Living Courageously, Confidently, and Unashamedly for Christ in a Fearful and Troubled World. Um, just a practical thought here to introduce things real quick. When I speak of being ashamed or embarrassed uh, of Christ and the gospel or even of his people, how does that work? Kind of how does that work? Why does that happen? Uh, I think often the embarrassment or the shame come by way of the obvious contrast that exists between us as believers and unbelievers, right? Th think about this for a minute. Um, that's because we as Christians are so different from the unsaved, or at least we should be, amen? Um, but that's why it happens. We're different. Uh, that's true in both belief and behavior. Uh, that is, the unsaved notice, hopefully, that we don't use curse words or the filthy language that they use, that we don't tell or listen to the dirty jokes that they tell and listen to, that we don't get into that like they do, um, or laugh those dirty jokes. We're, we are loving and kind and compassionate in our demeanor. We treat other people with respect and love. We love our spouses, uh, love our children, and we're honest and have obvious high moral standards and scruples and business dealings and in other areas. In other words, there's a big difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. And, and the greater that contrast is, uh, the more tempting it can be to be ashamed of the gospel, to be embarrassed uh, about it a little bit. Uh, and that's because often the pressure 
there's the pressure, call it peer pressure if you want, pressure by others to conform, uh, for us to conform to their way of thinking, their way of believing, their way of acting, etc. And I, I think that's one of the reasons it can happen. So as we saw last time, the Apostle Paul's protege, Timothy, he had been doing evangelistic work and uh, teaching and pastoral work in the city of Ephesus. He was teaching and preaching the word. He was discipling people. He was developing new leaders, new elders. And because of that, much of the ministry for him, it, it was tough at times. It was rough. He had been discouraged, and he became discouraged and had backed off on his or in his service. And through disuse, he had let his spiritual gift cool and wane. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and thus Paul had to write to Timothy to encourage him, to spur him on, you know, and uh, uh, encourage him to keep going. But before we pick up where we left off last time, allow me to answer a question I had in my mind this week, and that is this. What potentially, just to get you thinking about our passage and the, the theme here, what potentially could have caused Paul, Timothy, and others to have been ashamed of the gospel in their day and culture? That can happen to us in our day and culture, but what about then? That is, what might have caused Paul and Timothy or any believer in 67 AD to be embarrassed about the gospel or uh, of Christ or his people. And I think there were a number of factors that could have contributed to that. I'm going to give them to you really fast here, and I think we'll have the little list on the, on the uh, overhead. Uh, one would be the moral climate in which Paul, Timothy, and other believers lived. That day and culture uh, was one of gross moral degeneracy. We're talking about the Roman Empire in 67 AD. These were the terrible and hideous days of Emperor Nero. Uh, Rome was a moral sewer. It was full of detestable sin and wickedness. It included prostitution, abortion, uh, dis a total disrespect for marriage. There was homosexuality and all kinds of sexual per perversion. Kind of sound familiar, right? But like our culture, um, which grows worse and worse, much like our culture, uh, that kind of, excuse me, much like our own, this culture, this behavior in the Roman Empire stood diametrically opposed to the righteousness of Christ, to the gospel and all. Now, are you looking at me like I'm somewhere off? Okay. <laughs> all right. I had a look. And I just had to double check, make sure I wasn't in left field in terms of the outline here. Um, so if you're going to preach the gospel in that culture, the point is you better be ready to take some flack, right? You're going to have some resistance. You would stand out like a sore thumb. So for that reason, it would have been very tempting to be embarrassed about the gospel. A second possible contributing factor would be the anti-Semitism that existed in that day. And it did exist. Uh, the anti-Semitism. Paul was by race and nationality, as you know, a Jew. He lived in a culture that was known for its anti-Semitism, its hatred of the Jews. The Romans often thought of the Jews as a despicable uh, subhuman race worthy to be cursed and despised and ill-treated, and they certainly did do that to them. And so it would have been natural for Paul to be somewhat apprehensive about the gospel, even among, or especially among his own people, um, and among Jews there in the Roman Empire, just because of the attitudes that existed. Uh, especially, think about this, especially when you're preaching a message saying that the only way to be saved, that you can only be saved by a certain Jew who was crucified on a cross. Uh, that would have gone against the grain of a lot of folks in the Roman Empire, especially uh, since crucifixion was uh, used by them only for the, the worst of criminals. So in such circumstances, it would have been tempting to shy away from other Jews. 
Another contributing factor, a third one, the fact that the gospel that Paul preached was so unbelievable by some. By, by many, it was just unbelievable. Think about it again. For some preacher like Paul, who didn't believe in the gods of Rome, to publicly proclaim that a male member of the despicable Jewish race was said to be the only savior of all men, the savior of the world, I mean, how utterly ridiculous, at least to some in that day, especially uh, the fact that he was a Jew, but he was said to be a man, a human being that in an empire and culture noted for its women's liberation and polytheism. So he was a human and he was a man. It would have been hard to take by a lot of Romans. And um, the fact that the evangelists that went around said that this death, his death, was totally different from the death of most men, that he died on a cross for other men, that he died in their place, that he paid for their sin as their substitute, and then that he rose from the dead. These teachers also proclaimed his resurrection was proof that he was the very son of God. These kinds of unbelievable claims made the gospel a, a contemptible thing in the minds of many in the Roman Empire, especially a sophisticated Roman, you know? So it certainly would have been tempting to be a little embarrassed or a little ashamed of the gospel. I'm not saying Paul ever was, we know he wasn't. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, but it could have been tempting for some uh, to shrink away in shame and embarrassment when such phenomenal claims were being made except for the fact that we know they're true, right? Amen? I mean, that, that's the, the thing. We know that they're true. Um, as one writer put it, quote, the authorities imprisoned him in Philippi, referring to Paul. The religionists ran him out of Thessalonica and threatened his life in Berea. The intellectuals laughed him out of Athens. His message was considered foolishness to the intellectuals, the Greeks, and a stumbling block to his own people, the Jews. There were several times in Paul's life when he could have given up in shame and fled to some part of the earth to begin life all over again, end quote. But praise the Lord, he never did that, by the grace of God. Amen. That's why we're saved today in, in large part. Um, so today is not much different than Paul's day. People are still in some uh, way or another, to one degree or another, believers can be ashamed of the gospel. Um, and part of that, I think, has to do with grow growing out of that. We grow stronger in the Lord. We grow bolder in the Lord as we grow spiritually, right? Um, and if we're honest, we've all been there. We've all been there where we've been, either we've been outwardly ashamed of the gospel or we've just kept our mouth shut because we didn't want to be embarrassed, or we didn't want people to know, or whatever. We've all been there. Um, God is gracious, though, and we may fear ridicule and rejection, loss of recognition or status or position. We may even fear the loss of our livelihood because we are Christians, um, but we know that we don't have to. Amen? We don't have to be embarrassed about the gospel. And that's what the, the key verse here in our study, which we'll get to in, in just a little bit. 2 Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity or fear or cowardice, but of power and love and discipline or a sound mind or disciplined thinking, as we saw last time. So that's my little intro for this, these 15 minutes, uh, and we're going to continue on in our Bible instruction time later on. But let's just pray for a moment. Father, thank you that the Apostle Paul was such a wonderful example of not being ashamed of the gospel, and he certainly took his lumps in many different ways, as we know, uh, for taking such a bold stand for Christ. But Lord, we know that every single one of us can do the same. 
because we have the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And Lord, as we study more today, we'll find a number of reasons why we don't in any way have to be ashamed or embarrassed about the gospel, the Christ we serve, uh, and the Savior that we follow. Just guide us in our study a little later, and we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And by the way, welcome to everyone on Zoom, and uh, I, hope, I hope they'll be able to stay for the study too. So thank you. This time we're going to ask our brother Bill Limson to come up and give us the scripture reading for today. Brother Bill. Second Timothy, chapter 1. Second Timothy, chapter 1, we'll read the first 12 verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Jesus Christ. To Timothy, my beloved, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the unfainted faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded that in thee also. Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting out of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear but of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel, according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. But is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. This time we're going to once again, have our brother Mike Fitzhugh come forward and uh, give to us the word that the Lord has laid on his heart today. Brother Mike. Once again, good to be with you and uh, good to have our dear friends, Bill and Norma, if you haven't met them, Bill and Norma Price, brother and sister in the Lord, and they're from Loveland, Colorado, uh, and they're enjoying the weather here more at the moment, I think than maybe what they've got back home. So <laughs> thumbs up, right? All right, so we're glad to have them here visiting and uh, good to see the Zoom, good to see the Zoom people. Good to be seen by the Zoom people <laughs> and um, good to have them here. We're getting back into our study uh, of 2 Timothy 1 which our brother read, thank you, 1 to 12. And if you want to be there ready to go, um, we've had a 15-minute introduction already. And then two weeks ago, I did part one. So we're jumping right back into the middle of this study. And uh, it's basically about the main thought here has to do with not being ashamed of the gospel, 
and not having that spirit of fear. And that's what Paul says in verse 7. God has not given us a spirit of fear or cowardice or timidity, uh, but one of uh, power and love and discipline or a sound mind. And we'll be talking about that as we go along. Um, but we know that Timothy was having some problems. And as you look at the title, uh, living courageously, confidently, and ashamed, unashamedly in this fearful and troubled world, uh, Timothy certainly was not doing that. He was basically doing just the opposite. And uh, he, seemed, he seemed to be in that mode. And he was definitely in need of some loving encouragement, some firm exhortation and admonition uh, by the Apostle Paul, and certainly Paul gave that to him uh, and, and gives that to him in these pastoral epistles, especially First and, and Second Timothy. So I left you with a big question two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, uh, the big question was, how do we do that? How do we live courageously and confidently and unashamedly in a very scary world, in a world that's changing rapidly and becoming more scary in a sense, uh, depending on your perspective, I guess. But how do we live courageously, confidently, and unashamedly in this troubled world? And Paul makes it clear that believers do that by understanding and making use of the resources and gifts that have been given to them in Christ and in their salvation. And in other words, we must remember what's true of us because of our salvation. What is true of us? What uh, resources do we have because of our salvation? And then Paul bases, it's really upon these realities that Paul bases his exhortations to Timothy. He's appealing to Timothy based on his faith, and he starts that in the very early part of the chapter. He says, I remember I'm mindful of the faith that exists in you and was in your mother and was in your grandmother, and uh, we've read that as, we, as we've gone along and talked about that. But those gifts and resources, because of our salvation, they are so important. What are some of those? And I, this is kind of review from last time. What are some of those resources and gifts that I'm thinking about? Uh, last time I mentioned this little list. Remember, the gift of faith, the gift of faith, uh, the special spiritual gift of God, which every believer has to serve the body of Christ, the gift or resource of the Holy Spirit, which every true believer has. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a true believer. If you don't have him dwelling within you, uh, the gift or resource of suffering. And we saw from Philippians 129, that uh, suffering is actually, uh, actually granted by God and a gift from God. And then the gift of salvation, of course, and the truth of your holy calling. So it's when we as believers understand and make use of these divine resources and gifts, that's when we can live victoriously in this world, no matter what happens in the world, right? No matter how bad it gets. Um, and I don't expect it to get any better, frankly. So uh, I'll just state that right up front. Therefore, because of all those gifts and resources that belong to you as a believer, there are eight action steps that you and I can and should take, uh, all in order to live, again, courageously, confidently, and unashamedly for Christ in this fearful and troubled world. We've covered four already. I'm going to review briefly the first four so everybody can be on the same page and up to date in terms of where we're at. Um, number one, the first action step is to rekindle your gift. Rekindle your gift, that's verse 6. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh. Some versions say, Stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Kindle afresh that gift. And it was because of that sincere, uh, unhypocritical, saving faith that 
Paul says, for this reason. That's what that's taking you back to. I know of this faith that exists in you. And for this reason, I remind you, I know you're genuinely saved. I know you're a believer. Kindle afresh that gift. Uh, and through the authority and the conduit of the apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit had imparted to Timothy a special gift for specific service. And this special gift was to he was to exercise in serving the body of Christ. And historically, we know that was uh, at the church, especially at the church at Ephesus. And, but due to the rigors of the ministry, the spiritual combat Timothy had experienced, being on the front lines, all of that, he had become discouraged. He had become a bit lackadaisical in the use of that gift. And by the way, the dictionary defines lackadaisical as lacking enthusiasm enthusiasm, excuse me, and determination, carelessly lazy. And Paul's saying to Timothy, get it on, Timothy, stir up your gift. He knew he had backed off, he had slacked off. You need to fan the flame and the embers, think of a campfire, think of it, how you get it burning again, and you need to get that gift burning hot again. It had cooled through, what, a lack of use. He had just backed off, and your spiritual gift will cool and wane when you don't use it. And Tim, uh, Paul is encouraging Timothy to, again, stir it up. Uh, and it's my prayer that if there's anybody here today or on Zoom listening, listening to this message, that you too, if you're in a similar situation, that you too will do the same. Uh, stir up the gift that's in you. God gave it, Christ gave it to you for a purpose to serve the body, and, and we need to stir that up. Now, Timothy's special gift gave him special spirit-powered abilities in the areas of evangelism, preaching, teaching, and shepherding. And Paul is saying, stir up that gift, Timothy, fan the flame, uh, get it burning hot again. And so that's the first action step, rekindle the gift. Um, and you do that, keep in mind, you do that by actively serving and exercising the gift. You can't just sit around and expect your gift to uh, keep burning hot. You know, you've got to be active and serve. Secondly, um, second action step that we looked at, recognize your resources. Recognize your resources. Excuse me. Uh, verse 7, Paul says, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, implied he's given us some other kind of spirit, right? He's not given us a spirit of timidity or fear or cowardice, but of power and love and discipline. And we saw that this discipline refers to having a sound mind, meaning healthy, self-controlled thinking. That is one who is in control of their thinking and their emotions, and the two certainly go hand in hand. And we also saw that in one way or another, these resources are available, they're all available to us via the Holy Spirit, via the Holy Spirit. And I think that is exactly what he's referring to here. He, the Spirit who has come to dwell uh, in each believer, and he imparts to us the power we need to live courageously and confidently. And you try and do it on your own, and you'll find out real quick you can't, right? There's no way. He imparts to us that power. He also imparts to us the love. He's given us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love that we need to love the unlovely and the unlovable, whether sinner or saint. Timothy was in church work, and you know what? Doing church work and working with people, you need love, amen? You really do. We need love for each other, and, and that was one of the resources that was his in the power of the Holy Spirit, and again, it comes in very handy, especially when you're undergoing persecution. Romans 5, 5, you know the verse, hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out, shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And then this love and the Holy Spirit are all part of those divine resources. And we talked about that last time also. Second Peter 1.3 uh, saying that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to what? To life and godliness. 
everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So remember your resources. Rekindle your gift. Remember your resources. Three, rejoice in the gift of suffering and don't be ashamed. Rejoice in the gift of suffering and don't be ashamed. And having mentioned that God-given, spirit-given resources of power, love, and discipline, or disciplined thinking, Paul says uh, in verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, referring to his mission to come and, and save souls, or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Rejoice in that gift of suffering. Again, Philippians 1.29 clearly says that suffering for the Lord Jesus is a gift from God. Uh, Paul's writing to the believers at Philippi, including the elders and the deacons, so the leaders there. And he says, for to you it has been granted or given, King James Version, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, so your faith is a gift, but also to suffer for his sake. And there we saw that both faith, saving faith, and suffering are gifts or grants from God. The scripture clearly says that right there in black and white. In fact, the word forgiven or granted means literally to give graciously and generously to give graciously and generously. You know, Matthew, we looked at it, Matthew chapter 5, our Lord Jesus tells us that we are to respond to such suffering and persecution with what? Rejoicing. It just goes against the grain, though, doesn't it? Humanly, respond to persecution with rejoicing, but that's what uh, the Lord said. Rejoicing and gladness. He says, rejoice and be glad for that's how they treated the prophets who were before you. And then that led us to action step number four, which is remember your calling. And, and this is so exciting, I think, and I, I could preach weeks on just this, this point. Remember your calling. Verse nine uh, speaks of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us, there's that word again, graciously and generously, granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. And again, the point here is that in remembering, remember, let's tie this back to our theme. The point here is in remembering our calling and remembering our holy calling to salvation, it assures us that we are part of God's eternal plan and purpose. And folks, that's exciting, right? We are part of God's eternal plan and purpose. And that enables us to continue serving Christ with courage and confidence and a lack of shame. Because, hey, God planned this way back in eternity. And I'm a part of it. I mean, that's, that's thrilling, I think. Uh, I should hear at least one amen in here, I think. Thank you, brother. Okay. Um, so it, en it enables us to do that. Now, I'm rem I reminded you last time that our holy, calling, our holy calling includes being made a part of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? What, for what purpose? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you, for once you were not a people, but now you are the people, the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. First Peter <clears throat> chapter 2, 9 and 10. <clears throat> Paul also says in Romans 8, 17, that we're joint heirs with Christ. We talked about that last time, joint heirs with Christ. And Revelation, <clears throat> excuse me, Revelation 1, 6 tells us that God has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then you read down a little further in that same chapter, verse 10, <clears throat> those same kings and priests will reign upon the earth. They will reign upon. That's our holy calling, folks, in a nutshell. 
our holy calling. And folks, that should motivate, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry. <clears throat> Must have been that thunderstorm or something. <clears throat> I'll blame it on that. <clears throat> All of this, this holy calling, and the fact that we will one day reign upon this earth with our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, that should motivate and encourage any believer to keep on serving and exercising their gift, right? I mean, there's no reason at all to be ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ or of any of the resources that, that we have. Um, instead, we as believers in Jesus Christ can live in this fearful and troubled world truly with courage, with confidence, with joy, boldly, unashamedly, even if it means, and it just may, folks, even if it means suffering for him. And we've studied already, I think we looked at it last time, uh, where Paul also said to Timothy that those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. It's going to happen sooner or later to one degree or another, but we can live victoriously because of these Wonderful things, especially when we remember our holy calling, it should encourage us. And then there's action step number five. We covered those first four. That was all review. So uh, action step number five, realize your responsibilities. Realize your responsibilities. This is in verses 11 and 12a, or we could say realize your duty. <coughs> <coughs> Paul says of the gospel in verses 11 and 12, for which I was appointed, appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. And again, in showing Timothy how to live, how to serve Christ without shame and embarrassment, confidently and courageously, he appeals, Paul does, to his own life and ministry and his own calling to that ministry. And he says, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things. And I mentioned in our last study that Paul was essentially drafted into God's army. You realize that? We can think of it that way. He was basically drafted into God's army. God's selective service is what we're looking at here. Um, and we know from Acts chapter 9, we know that. Paul, known as Saul, uh, formerly known as Saul, was, look, was not looking to become a Christian, right? He was not looking to become a preacher, a Christian preacher for sure, or a teacher, or an apostle. No, in fact, he was on his way to Damascus, hot with hatred, to continue persecuting the then infant church. However, on that road to Damascus, Saul received his divine draft notice. Acts 9, 1-6 says this, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him <clears throat> to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. Folks, this was Paul's divine commission. This was his calling, and he was not expecting this to happen at all. Ask me to explain all that? I, I, don't, I can't explain it all, except to tell you what the Scripture says. He says to Timothy, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. And the literal Greek is in the emphatic sense, I myself was appointed, meaning 
by someone other than himself. And Paul had no doubt about his calling and appointment to service. In fact, it was later confirmed by one Ananias, a faithful disciple in Damascus, as the Lord Lord informed him, Ananias. And he said to him, Go, for he, is a, he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. <clears throat> so his calling was confirmed by this man, this brother in the Lord, Ananias. Uh, Paul publicly testified to his calling, first on the steps of the Roman army barracks, you'll remember, before a large crowd in Jerusalem uh, in Acts chapter 22. And then some years later, he would do so before a Roman governor, Festus, King Agrippa, and his wife Bernice in Caesarea. That's Acts chapter 26. And then Acts 20, 24 He reminds the elders at Ephesus that he had received marching orders and his uh, for his ministry directly from the Lord Jesus. He says to testify solemnly of the grace of God. And then 1 Corinthians 9, 16 and 17, he states it in even stronger terms by saying, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. In other words, this isn't something I'd pick to do as a career. This isn't something I would normally choose to do. But I am under obligation to do this because God has called me and appointed me to do this. Plus, I'm a steward, and I know one day I'm going to have to give an account to God of my stewardship. And according to 1 Corinthians 4.1, as preachers and teachers, Paul wrote, we are stewards of the what? Of the mysteries of God. And it's required of stewards that one be found faithful or trustworthy. Paul knew he had been called of God, Now look at these terms for a moment in terms of what were the responsibilities? What did God call Paul to do? Well, for one, he says he was an appointed preacher. Uh, The term preacher speaks of his function, which was uh, to be one who was a proclaimer or a herald of the gospel. And a preacher, in terms of the Greek word, the Greek word kerux, refers to one who... um, officially and publicly announces a message as given by a ruler or a king. This is authoritative stuff, right? A preacher proclaims the message of the king. And so the Holy Spirit used the exact right word here, uh, calling him uh, a preacher. And Paul was also appointed or commissioned as an apostle. And we all know, I think that that means a sent one, but it means a sent one, one sent on a mission with delegated authority. In this case, the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that he was an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And Romans eleven thirteen identify, Paul identifies himself as the apostle to who? To the Gentiles, right? The apostle, not to the Jews so much, uh, although he, he did at times preach to the Jews, but he was mainly the apostle to the Gentiles. So notice these terms. The term preacher speaks of Paul's function. The term apostle speaks of Paul's authority delegated to him by Christ himself as he was sent out to the Gentiles by Christ himself. The term teacher, this is a very important term, the term teacher speaks of interpreting, of his interpreting and explaining the message of his authoritative sermons, if you will, of what he authoritatively proclaimed or preached. He interpreted it, he explained it, that's what we call expository preaching today. And Paul was a teacher in that sense. And when you know 
think of this. God, Christ, and the Spirit had commissioned or appointed Paul to all of these positions and gifts and responsibilities. And when you know that for certain in your heart, you won't ever be ashamed or embarrassed about the gospel or about your, your ministry, right? Or about what you're saying. Paul knew that for certain. You know, he was confident. He had confidence. Many years ago, huh? I don't know if anybody here would know. I, I think there's a couple that I think might know. Many years ago, there was a song called I've Got Confidence. Remember that? Anybody remember who did it? Andre Crouch and the Disciples, of course. <laughs> I've Got Confidence. It's a great song, and it's basically about the confidence we have in the Lord during hard times. Well, Paul certainly had that confidence and that boldness. When you know for certain that Almighty God has effectually called you to salvation, has gifted you with special spiritual abilities for service, and has specifically appointed you to certain tasks, then you can be confident. And you don't have to be embarrassed. And you don't have to be ashamed about anything. You can have great courage and confidence as you serve Christ. Amen? Amen. And that's why I, I certainly hope this message, message encourages us in that sense, that in that way, that we would be like, that we would be like Paul. You know, in reality, God has called and gifted every believer, including each of you, every believer. And he has appointed him or her to use those gifts in his service. Listen to what the Lord said. You know it well. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And there's that word and appointed you, appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give to you. What a wonderful promise in relation to serving and, and fruit-bearing. And Paul understood it was for this reason that he had to suffer these things. And that suffering had to do with suffering for the gospel, suffering uh, in terms of imprisonment as a criminal, he talks about. And uh, one brother wrote of Paul and his faithfulness and said this, quote, he suffered because he faithfully preached the fullness of the gospel of salvation because he proclaimed that truth with divine authority and because he interpreted that word with divine insight. Very often the price of devotion to divine duty is affliction by this world, end quote. And that's why Paul said, for this reason I suffer. And he understood. <clears throat> he certainly understood. Notice, uh, notice our next point, number six, action step number six. We are to rest in the Lord and in his power. Rest in the Lord and in his power. Uh, and I want you to notice again, verse 12, which our brother read, all the personal pronouns he uses in pointing to the Lord. He says, for this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. Why? For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What is that day? Well, I believe that day has to do with the judgment seat of Christ when we, the Bema seat, where we will be evaluated for the purpose of the Lord issuing rewards. Issuing rewards. I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. In other words, I know my God, and I know what he can do, and I know what he will do. And notice Paul's not being ashamed was so closely tied to not merely what he knew, what he knew, as crucial as that knowledge is, but to who he knew, right? The Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, I know. I mean, that means I know without 
a doubt, absolute certainty, no doubt whatsoever. It's the Greek word oida, and Jesus used it in assuring his followers. He says, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. That's Matthew 6, 8. Uh, prior to the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6, 5, and 6, the Bible says, Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, he said to Philip, Where are we to get my bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Same word. He knew without a doubt what he was going to do. There was just no doubt about it. And then Paul says, I know whom I have believed. Whom refers to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He knew the object of his faith, who it was. And it was not a particular church or a religion or a denomination. No, it was the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ alone. Acts 4.12, there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name in, uh, under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. I know whom I have believed, and he knew it was Jesus Christ. Uh, and this, this word believed, it means to be persuaded, to be totally convinced as you place your trust in someone. And that's what he was saying. I have believed it was in something called the perfect tense. Why do I care about the perfect tense? Well, in Greek, it's important. It speaks of something that began at a point in the past and has continuing results. It happened in the past with continuing results. I know whom I have believed. You know, when I believed in Christ some 50 years ago and I was saved from my sin and totally forgiven, I was made a new creature in Christ, transformed from the inside out. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that <clears throat> new things have come, right? When that happens, when you're born again, new things have come. And guess what? They just keep on coming and coming and coming, right? As we grow, as we know the Lord, I believed in the past with continuing results and the new things keep on coming. What, what a wonderful truth that is. So again, Paul's certain knowledge was not merely knowledge of a thing or of a truth as important as God's truth is. Neither was it knowledge of a theological system, but that knowledge, that certain knowledge was of God himself, of Christ himself. He knew whom, I, I know whom I have believed, he says. And by the way, that word for know also speaks of intimate, up-close, personal knowledge. A number of you know my wife, Nona. You know who she is. You're acquainted with her a little bit, and you're getting to know her uh, more and more as we spend more time here. Um, but as her husband of 47-plus years, I know and have known my wife, right? Um, personally, intimately, lovingly, affectionately. And uh, we know each other so well, you know, we're getting to that point where we can almost finish the sentences and, and that type of thing. Except when I tell stories, she corrects my stories. I always get the details wrong. Has that happened to you? Okay, it must be just part of our age group. Can I say that? <laughs> If you've been married that long, that's the way it works, right? Because you know each other so well. That's right. We understand how it works. So um, we know all about them. So that's the knowledge of an intimate relationship. And that's the word Paul says, Paul uses here uh, of that intimate, personal relationship. And therefore he can say, I am convinced, I know my God so well, I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Um, Paul knew well his God and Savior and Lord. He knew that he, via his death, burial, and resurrection, had done what? Well, the text tells us he had abolished death. He had brought immortality to light through the gospel. And because of the gospel, death was abolished, rendered powerless, rendered inoperative. It's not a problem anymore for believers, is it? Why would we ever fear death? 
The Lord says, if you believe in me, even though you die, yet shall you live, John 11. We understand that. We don't fear death. And brothers and sisters, that is why and how you as a believer can live for Christ confidently in a very wild, crazy world and scary world because of these truths, because of these things. All of these resources, all of these truths, by resting in the Lord and in his power and in the truth of his word, and you can do that because of your intimate knowledge of him. Paul knew how Christ had been faithful to him every step of the way. And we can know, I certainly trust that we know the same because we know him so well and we are getting to know him better and better all the time. You know, there is a word here I just mentioned real quick that's interesting. Um, he says, I'm convinced that he's able to keep or guard that which I've entrusted to him until that day. Uh, duna, dunatos, the word for able, dunatos, literally means powerful ability or powerful enough. He's almighty God. He's powerful enough to guard what I've entrusted to him. What did Paul entrust to him? His life, his eternal soul, his entire ministry, everything about him he entrusted to him, including his eternity. And uh, this word to guard, or excuse me, the word to entrust, he entrusted it to him, literally deposited, like you would deposit something in a bank. When you go to your bank and you make a deposit, no matter how much or how little the money is, you're trusting the bank to keep it and protect it for you. And that's exactly what this word is about. And he was powerful enough. I know he's able to guard what I've entrusted, to guard as you would guard something if you were uh, a Roman guard, standing guard with the penalty being your life if you, if you blow it in, on guard duty, you know. That, that's the sense of the word. In uh, God's almighty power, he's powerfully able to keep us saved and safe. And that's why eternal security is such a blessing in terms of that, that doctrine. So he would say this in Romans 8, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced, oh, there's that word again, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so again, I would ask you, why be ashamed or embarrassed about Christ or the gospel or his people when you know a God like this? Amen? When you know a God like this, and when, and I would say, if you don't know him, and I trust that everyone here today does, but maybe there's somebody watching on Zoom that doesn't, or maybe someone will hear a recording of this message someday. If you don't know him, then I urge you to believe in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn away from your sins. Bible calls that repentance and turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Believe that he died on Calvary's cross to pay the penalty of, for your sins, all your sins, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day, that he is alive today. Believe that and then call upon him in faith and ask him to save you if you've never done it before. Ask him to save you. And then you can live in a wild and crazy world without fear. We began this whole study talking about all the things that people fear today. Without fear, and as a believer, you can live without shame, without embarrassment, boldly, confidently, courageously, and glorify God in the process. Amen?
All right. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Father, I thank you for your word and how encouraging it is. And I thank you for saving our souls. I thank you for the Apostle Paul and how you called him and used him in so many wonderful ways as that apostle that sent one to the Gentiles, to people like us who are lost in sin and needed the gospel. And we thank you for how you providentially and sovereignly worked throughout human history and world history, especially to get the gospel finally to each of us here. And Lord, I pray that we would go forth and live boldly and confidently, that we would go forth in courage and the boldness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, as Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. Thank you.